I mean, I, I founded Blue Book Cities because I wanted to I wanted to develop an option for intellectual exit, right? I wanted to build a place for sort of my people, the people that I that I like to speak with and like to spend time with. And I saw the sort of dissolution of the city as a labor market being a sort of vehicle for that sort of step forward. The future of cities is these highly verticalized, much smaller cities that a lot more niche, a lot more focused. But there's this question of, okay, like how do you actually implement that, right? Welcome to the Conservative Curious Podcast, where we uncover niche thinkers at the intersection of philosophy, tech, and culture. I'm your co-host, Jessica Dang, alongside my friend and co-host, Ani Pai. In this episode, we talk to Dryden Brown, CEO of Blue Book Cities, a company that builds new cities in frontier markets. Dryden has a radically new vision for building cities, and it goes beyond having an economic rationale. But he can't tell us too many details about this project. Still, we discuss his theories on the function of cities and why people live in them. We get bits and pieces about his next venture, and we talk about why we should let a thousand Americas bloom. And I think there's this sort of perception that like charter cities are thing and there are space and there are people involved in this space. And that's not really true, right? I mean, th- there are like a few people who I think are doing real things, but I think trying to sort of prematurely define, you know, what the space is and like how one should operate in it is probably not helpful. Basically, the idea is you approach a government and say, hey, if we change these laws and regulation in this way, we can sort of unlock some foreign direct investment to come into the country. Also, you know, we're going to build some like specialized infrastructure that will attract some firm that wants to manufacture some stuff in Nigeria or, or wherever it may be, right? The theory is that you can create a special economic zone and then layer these policy reforms on top and that'll help you scale from like basic SEZ, which is basically a parking lot with a really high fence around it and a couple of big buildings like making stuff into a city. The thing that I would say is that it's a lot like so there's a recent project that Pernomus Capital, which funded Blue Book Cities and a lot of other charter cities projects did with the Honduran government, where it was specifically about human capital. So even more so than foreign direct investment, it's like, how do we get the brightest people in one place? The smart people realize that you can't maybe get a Silicon Valley, but you can control the inputs that make a Silicon Valley, which really come down to the people. So to take a step back, right, like what are cities Cities are, are primarily labor markets. There are sort of these other meta structures that exist on top of the labor market. You know, you get museums and so forth in a city and, and, and people like to talk about the culture of cities and the character and the texture and all these things. But but none of them exist without a functioning labor market, without like an economic rationale, you know, that attracts people to the city. Fundamentally, you know, young people move to cities to participate in the labor market to increase their social status. And then they cash that social status out in the dating market. They pair up. Eventually, they move to the suburbs. And, and that's sort of what cities are. Totally reductionist, very simple model. But I think it's a useful model. So they're incentivized to build a charter city because they want foreign investment and they're unable to attract foreign investment because these countries have like weird laws or something. I think one of the issues with a lot of the charter city, new city thought is that they tend to focus on the sort of one to end problem. Like, how do you optimize the city? You know, if we if we, you know, sort of import 
British common law, which is like familiar, maybe familiarity is a feature. It's easier for, for your general counsel to sign off on like, you know, opening the new office with like, you know, the labor law and so forth. If the law is familiar to them, this is sort of the like Dubai model. The Dubai model works. This layering better governance on top of functional labor market works to, to grow the labor market if the labor market's there, right? So, so sort of you're talking about like one to N optimizations, whereas I think we haven't like earned the right to talk about that problem yet in the space. So I, I think the, the totality of the focus needs to be on like, how do we solve the zero to one problem? If people move to cities to increase their status as a consequence of participating in a labor market, how do we get people to move to like a new city, which is basically just an empty piece of land, right? There's no labor market there. So it's like X labor market. What's the rationale? What's the economic rationale or religious or whatever the rationale might be? What's the rationale? I think you have to have like a really sound zero to one or cold start solution when you're when you're building a new city. In my mind, when I think about a charter city, it almost sounds like a real estate development project, the sense that, oh, if we build it, they'll come. Earlier, you were talking about the city's culture and personality. Every city starts developing that organically. I don't know how you can create that from the top down. It often takes, you know, centuries. And I think it's not like Dryden was saying, like you build it and then immediately after you get amazing cultural surplus, I think. Aren't there cities in China where they just did a rush to build thinking that the farmers and everybody from the countryside were going to come in and then it ended up being just a ghost town? I know what you're referring to. I, I know like about the phenomenon of ghost cities, but I think a lot of them, I think it's kind of overstated. I think a lot of them actually have filled out. Yeah, I mean, you can do top-down city projects and they can totally work if you have the resources of like a China. I mean, even like just to give an example, right? Like Nigeria built Abuja, their capital city. Like you can build, you know, a new capital city, Denovo. You can just say, hey, we're going to put a capital city here, build a bunch of infrastructure. And, you know, if you sort of think about your cities as a labor market, right? You just say, hey, like all of the government buildings are going to be in this city. We have to hire like 20,000 people or something like that. And you're just bootstrapping the the demand side of the labor market, you know, sort of arbitrarily with with these like government functions that you need to hire a bunch of people for, right? I think like at this moment, sort of like labor market is an interesting framing for for cities. I think it's like pretty useful. But yeah, I mean, as the labor market migrates to the cloud and, and we all end up sort of working remote or having the option to work remote, let's sort of like, you know, steel man, the like labor market moves to the cloud version of the future. What happens to cities in that case? Well, cities certainly aren't labor markets if everyone is getting employed from the cloud. They have these remote jobs and whatever. So why would you move to cities? Well, yeah, I think you'd move to cities basically for the dating markets and because my intuition is that for quite a while, politics tends to happen and like, you know, a lot of politics happens sort of IRL. You want to like, at least, you know, some people want to meet with one another and, and conspire and make plans and so forth. The social interactions that pertain to like power and politics and influence and things like this, I think a lot of them will probably still happen, still happen yeah. in person and certainly dating has to happen in person. It's hard to procreate through the internet. So I met one of Ani's friends who moved from New York to San Francisco. And it's funny because on Twitter, he'll say like, oh, I hate San Francisco. I love New York. I miss New York because New York is so walkable. And the way it's designed is to facilitate those social interactions that you're talking about. Whereas SF, like they're saying, like the streets are too wide. There are all these like little design components that make the city function differently, I guess. Yeah. I had this conversation with Thibaut, who started the Startup Societies Foundation, and we were talking about how Paris was designed after Napoleon with the Hausmann buildings for riot prevention. So Napoleon shortened the streets such that they couldn't just sprawl out in the street and, you know, commit these acts of debauchery that happened in the reign of terror. And I thought that was, you know, one example of like cities shaping thought and then thought then reflexively shaping cities. 
there's this guy, Patrick Schumacher at Saha Hadid, who talks about sort of architecture being a means of communication and, and, you know, wanting to sort of optimize for spontaneous interaction and things like this. And I think there are a lot of interesting conversations to have about, about the design of cities. I think, right, when we're talking about San Francisco or New York, I just don't think we've gotten there yet. I think at this point, like, we need to, like, make sure we can, we can maintain order, make sure the streets are clean. I think there are a lot of political questions that maybe precede the design questions. And certainly there's some sort of interplay between these two. How do you design the sort of, like, institutional structure of, how do you design, like, the government? How do you, how do you make sure people's incentives are guiding them towards designing a product, you know, the masses that inhabit the city actually enjoy and, you know, helps them flourish and helps them feel like they live in a society and not like a just big special economic zone. And I think the sort of incentive design questions, the political questions sort of precede the architectural design questions, maybe. You know, what's really interesting, too, I came across this article about Upali Nanda, and she's the director of research for HKS Architects. And she talks about buildings as living organisms, basically infuses neuroscience into architecture and how the human brain functions and how we interact with our spaces. Maybe the cities of the future will start seeing cities as a living organism and take all of those things into account. Like what we're talking about where New York is designed in a way to facilitate social interactions. Maybe all these things will start to just seep through the design and planning of cities in such a way that in the future, when you live in the city, it just enhances your whole well-being in all these different ways. And I think that we hopefully should start thinking in that way instead of just limiting it to labor markets, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I, th- I think ideally what you want is to sort of reduce the cost of building cities by, you know, orders of magnitude, make it like, you know, 10% of the cost, and then, and then you can try more of these projects. And back to an earlier point though that you made about cities promoting wellness, I mean, that's what resorts do, right? Maybe you just hire a guy who works at like Amon or like Ritz-Carlton. Usually these ideas, like you, you can find an analog somewhere else. Like you can find people. Yeah, yeah, but when I'm thinking about like cities of the future, yeah. like I'm talking about like, even if you think about like hospitals of the future, mm-hmm. it's looks so different than what we think of a hospital today. Like you're right. Maybe it could be hospitals of the future. It could be like an Amman resort where they have like meditation rooms and like a hot tubs or saunas. I think that what is the vision for the city of the future? I was reading through the well-tempered city and he was just talking about how the key elements of civilization are culture, connectivity, coherence, community, and compassion. And I think that when we only look at cities as development of buildings or infrastructure, we're like losing out on like this holistic concept of a city and that humans live there and that maybe in the future, the way that we should look at cities is to like enhance like the well-being. But on the other hand, it's about, you know, a certain sense of community and coherence. And how do you how do you create that? When I was reading the New Totalitarians about Sweden, they had a whole social engineering project in the 1930s where they laid out the aesthetic that everybody was supposed to live by. They were trying to create this like very cohesive society from that experiment. I'm not like championing, you know, social engineering, but they were able to create this like very cohesive society with like a cohesive aesthetic. Those same Swedish people did the euthanasia programs of the 50s. But you're completely right. Like, you know, at least they have a vision. And going back to the hospital point, I think that's a great point, you know, envisioning really like definitely I really hope that they don't look the same because hospitals are very dreary places. You feel sad. But even more than that. So the Autodesk CEO. So Autodesk is this manufacturing software like kind of like CAD where you can design buildings and, you know, just things in the real world. So in the world of atoms. And he was saying how when I walk into most houses and when I walk into most buildings, I can tell that they were designed with Autodesk. And he's like, 
like the speed of that changing and the speed of the cities of the future, I think just holistically depends on like what software we might have, which kind of sucks. Dryden, you're going to be building these cities. Like what is your ideal city of the future? What do you want to create? Fundamentally, I, th- I think I'm interested in, in the cultural project in building a society around a new ontology, a new sort of like frame. So I think for me, my focus is more on developing an online community of like-minded people that aren't particularly enthused about their sort of like spiritual and philosophical surroundings and then porting them in, into a new place. And, and certainly we think a lot about what the buildings might look like and, and what the layout of the buildings and the physical structures will be. I mean, I think it's important for me to be in a beautiful place with like Mediterranean climate and be on the beach. And I think all these things are really nice. But yeah, I mean, I think the city of the future is a lot more verticalized spiritually and philosophically. I think we're going to move to places with much more like-minded people. I want to like highlight the point that this isn't dissident or oppositional in any way. I mean, I think you can have hundreds of cities that don't partake in the like seemingly homogenous framing that most people sort of accept of the world in the West. You can, you can view the world in a lot of different ways, and it's sort of unclear that we have any special access to truth in our society. So yeah, I mean, my, my interest is in this intellectual project of, of developing a coherent worldview and then building a community around that and then porting that in, into the world of atoms. No, but I was going to say, I guess your assumption also in that case is like cities are the underpinning for ontology, right? So that worldview is basically created by a city. But do you think that I guess somebody would also say like, oh, is there a way we could kind of do that without a city? Like, can we can we make like a new worldview without having to make a new urban population? Yeah, I mean, certainly you can participate in these projects in sort of a fragmented way. You can live your life in New York or San Francisco or L.A. or whatever, and then moonlight on these intellectual projects and develop a new worldview. And they can be increasingly, it's, it's easy to, to do these things in terms of sort of like IRL. Like You don't all have to be in the same place or necessarily. But I don't know. I mean, I think increasing it's, it's just like more and more difficult to sort of take the chill pill and not participate in the culture. It's sort of these people tend to go on offense more and more frequently. So, I mean, I think you end up living this sort of schizophrenic life where you sort of read about the truth and post about the truth online or something like that. And then you sort of go out into the world and you're talking about completely different things with different idioms. And yeah, I mean, I think the internet for a lot of people causes like this sort of spiritual fragmentation where, I mean, it's, it's, it's powerful in a lot of ways because it sort of brings together these these communities that might not exist otherwise. I think sort of like the double-edged sword of, of online communities is that the more attractive they are, the more like deeply immersed you become in them, the sort of more fragmented your your life becomes where sort of like I interact with my friends at school in this one sort of, I have this one mode of existence for school and for and for work and, and then for sort of online. But often these things, there end up being like sort of internal contradictions. And I think that can become difficult for people. So to the extent that you can find communities of 100,000 people around the world and they become sort of passionate enough about about the ideas and about their participation in this community that they want to incur the switching cost, incur the opportunity cost of leaving the metropole and going and hanging out with all these people in some new IRL community. I I think then you can have a lot more cities a lot more new cities in the world, then, then the sort of business model becomes viable. You can aggregate the demand online around a sort of niche topic, interest, whatever, and then sort of port it into the into the world of atoms. On that note, I think that uh, the trend is that people are moving out of cities and therefore like maybe small towns are the new charter cities, you know, because you have all these hip, cool people moving to like Hudson, New York, or some small town in upstate New York, and they're turning into really cool new places too. Yeah, I think the reason for that also is because the internet has solved the search problem. So like Jess and I, so we met online. I met Dryden online too. 
and now we're here and we could just go hang out. And yeah. it was super hard to go and hang out. Like 20 years ago, it was way harder to meet people. But now the amount of people I know who have left the Valley to go live in Austin in their own communes has like skyrocketed. Yeah. And I think like in that way, that's kind of what I was trying to get out with the community thing of like, I think people would just say like, why well, need a city, right? Why can't I just get the people that I would just interact with daily, put them in like one of those, you know, those like Galt's Gulches, libertarian communes or... I think cities probably do get a lot smaller. I, I'm not sure mm-hmm. what the agglomeration effects look like in this new paradigm, but I think, you know, we're going to find out. My guess would be that, yeah, that cities get quite a bit smaller, but that there are a lot more of them. They're more verticalized. I still think probably power ends up being fairly concentrated. So in the United States, it's sort of like just SF and New York. So maybe that's the same. Maybe, maybe like you have a few really big cities that are kind of like the power centers that people go there to, to influence other people sort of on this broad scale. But, but even like, I don't even know if that's the case though, right? It's like the New York Times used to be sort of like national newspaper. Now it's like sort of a niche newspaper for leftists who live in New York. Yeah, like a regional rag, I think. But one of the consequences, I think, also of smaller cities or villages or towns or however you, whatever nomenclature you use is that one of my predictions, and I think it hasn't panned out last decade, but I think it will this decade, is like, so we have what, about like a 205 countries or something? Like, you know, not as many as one would expect for cities of the future. And as it gets smaller, you know, maybe we get more countries. It's like, I'm hoping that, you know, there'll be a strong drop in the marginal tax rate, right? I mean, I think, you know, sort of from the jump, like what we're trying to do is build a sort of like tight, coherent community that's fairly small, right? So so it's 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 not going to be 100,000 people sort of on day one, city scale on day one. It's let's build, let's build a community for thousands or perhaps 10,000 people. But my question to you then is that, so we do all this and 10 years later, we have the blog, right? Let a thousand nations bloom. Mm-hmm. We have all these cities. If there's like one thing you could change about the current paradigm, not just in cities, but I guess you also brought up ontology, like what would that vision of utopia be, I guess. Just a softball question from Ani, as usual. I think having, like, again, more spiritual variation between cities, like more diversity in, in intellectual and, and religious sense, I think that I think that would make the world like a much more compelling place. I mean, I think the sort of totalitarian gray goo that, that ends up covering, I, I don't find that to be particularly exciting. I think I think you want to have sort of breakaway civilizations. You want to have people that are working on radically different things that follow from different different ontologies, different different worldviews, right? So I mean I think there are a bunch of different things you can optimize for in society. There are a bunch of different values. But like say you wanted to create like a a new city that is like based around this intellectual community. Are you talking about like local people or are you talking about you're just trying to draw in like anyone internationally? We're trying to build a beachside, like a safe, beautiful beachside community for remote workers on the Mediterranean. That's the vision. Certainly many of those people will be people from the surrounding area. And as we scale, I think there will be quite a bit more diversity injected into the population. But at the outset, yeah, the vision is, hey, let's build a beautiful beachside community for remote workers. Sort of let's try to think deeply about how do we create like a dynamic dating market? How do we promote cultural coherence? Like how do we build a society as opposed to again like a free trade zone? I think that's interesting. I think thinking about like who wouldn't want to move there, okay? Like (laughs) you travel so much. What are your favorite cities and what do they get right? I think certainly like everything proceeds from order broadly, right? I mean I think I think you have to start with all right, let's build a like you know, a safe, clean society, and then sort of let the culture emerge. 
I mean, I think San Francisco, it's just not like a sort of like joyous environment. People tend to be fairly on edge. Like, you know, you'll have a, a homeless person throw trash on you. And I think cities like Dubai that that are able to promote and maintain order end up just having a, a more like comfortable sort of carefree vibe. People are less like hostile with one another. Ultimately, I think all you can do as a city builder is build a platform, sort of maintain the platform well, and then let these spontaneous interactions happen. It's hard to say. I mean, certainly you want to have like beautiful outdoor spaces where people can meet, talk and so forth. But ultimately, like your life is so specific, like it's yours and you don't go to New York and experience New York. You experience your friends in New York. Maybe you meet some people at a coffee shop or at a bar or something like that. But I think sort of the best you can do is make sure cities are safe and clean. And so people feel comfortable and comfortable sort of being themselves and, you know, a little bit less paranoid and a little bit less sort of schizophrenic. I mean, I think you don't want to have hushed conversations. You want to have sort of expressive conversations. And I think sort of like verticalizing cities, I think that that'll sort of like help promote a more comfortable atmosphere. I, I think like college campuses are a decent analogy. They're just friendlier and more familial than, than these sort of abrasive cities like New York or something that I enjoy, but you don't necessarily enjoy the abrasiveness of New York. You enjoy the sense that there are sort of these power structures that exist there and maybe that you could participate in or something like that. And I think that's energizing. We should be tinkering with laws like code because like San Francisco never had a break in the middle, right? So when SF started, we moved straight from the gold rush. Then you had that brief period where it became an industrial city and then it went to being a tech and financial hub. And there was no like break in the middle for people to like update the, you could say, software of the city and be like, oh, we need to build like more housing here. We need to do this. We need to like update the charter such that we're not generally gentrifying all the African-Americans, old people. And I think treating that idea, that view of, you know, all these things are not set in stone from the outset, like even historically, right? Like the Rome founding myth was something that they recreated every year and yeah. that energized the people in order to conquer the world, right? And I think what you're doing and, we, you know, we don't have to commit violence in order to update the city. And I think that's really impressive. And I think if cities are built around, like, again, like sort of a common, a common framing of the world, a common ontology, a common religion or whatever it might be, I think you just get a, a much deeper sense of kinship. Even if you walk around your university campus, it's like we're sort of all in this together. I think you're able to, you want sort of diversity on, on some level. You want to you know, meet people who have different opinions and that's intellectually stimulating. And you know, they tell you about their cultural background, which might be you know, radically different from yours. And this helps like open up your mind to different different things that are going on in the world and, and whatever, right? But I think you want a sense of common identity, just something as simple as like, you know, we all go to Brown or so, you know, I went to NYU, we all, we all go to, it helps people, yeah, I mean, just be more expressive to flourish, to feel more comfortable around sort of people in like sort of the other residents of the city. I, I think also, right, like if cities are dating markets as opposed to labor markets, I think there's going to be a lot more, the sort of age range in cities is going to be, you're going to have mostly sort of people in their late teens, 20s, early 30s, you know what's interesting? You were talking about how do we get people to move into these charter cities? The book that I was talking about earlier about Sweden, they had massive waves of people migrating to America and they didn't know how to get the people to stay in Sweden. Mm -hmm. And that's why they started this whole social engineering campaign to create a common identity. Mm -hmm. So like what you're saying, the common yeah. identity is really the root. Yes. Yeah. You know, the rise of social atomization and the lack of shared rituals we have, I think, are like super connected, right? So you could think of college campuses as just, we share these rituals, we have game day, we're all together, it's us versus them. Yeah. Cities were, were historically like that. Yeah, sort of we're all in this together versus sort of like sharing a common identity that that actually kind of makes sense. Right? I mean, I think people talk about like polarization or something like that, like political polarization in American society. And 
And it's sort of always framed as being a bad thing. But if you have sort of two powerful groups that are in conflict with one another, they constrain one another. And, you know, one is less likely to develop into sort of the totalitarian regime that ends up depriving you of your freedoms and so forth, right? So, I mean, I think, like, ultimately what you want is you want a world where there are a lot of different cities, a lot of different sort of, like, identities to associate with. You know, you can sort of travel between these things and, you know, taste the chocolate ice cream and the vanilla ice cream and whatever and participate in all these these different sorts of things. But yeah, I mean, I think you want a world where there's a lot of diversity, a lot of political diversity. I hope the sort of, like, decentralization thing happens. I'm not sure if it will, but I think that would be good for the world. Isn't it funny how what you're describing almost sounds like the founding of America? Yeah. Yeah, no. You know, diversity in thought and politics, religion and people. Even the diaspora, right? Like the common where the theme of leaving is what not just the Jews, but it's also like, you know, Europe, religious persecution, this time it's not happening because of religious persecution. It's happening because of like just ideological persecution and canceling everyone who doesn't have the same beliefs as the most radical 10%. Right. It was a good experiment while it lasted, I guess. Yeah, right. So, I mean, I think there's a sense in which the youngest sons populate the new world. It's like these people who weren't left their family's fortunes, want to go sort of elevate their social status somewhere. And and like in this sort of fertile land, you have you have a greater opportunity than you do that to do that in old Europe, like an ossified social hierarchy, right? So, I mean, I think for some people who who want something different, who want something new, but then also for people who want to increase their social status and... Let a thousand Americas bloom. Yeah. Yeah, let a thousand Americas bloom. But, you know, like all of these things that you're talking about, I'm like, oh, that sounds like the founding of America. And boy, if this is like the arc, if this is like how it's going to bend in the end, like, whoa. Yeah, so I have ancestors that fought in the Revolutionary War. So I, I thought a lot about thought a lot about this. What does that DNA do in you? What does that make you think about when you're thinking about starting a chartered city? The sort of like motivating aspect of that like element of my background, having an ancestor that fought in the Revolutionary War is it sort of really wasn't a LARP, right? It wasn't like a, hey, like we're libertarian and we're going to talk about starting a new society. We're going to blog all day about how like the government is inherently evil or something like that on Monday. And then on Tuesday, we're going to go talk to some African country and ask them for like sovereignty. It's just kind of a LARP. It's like you have to know in your heart that like nothing's ever going to come of that, right? You have to actually genuinely want to help the country. You have to want to help the country flourish. You have to want to help their people flourish. You have to want to help sort of U.S., the hegemon flourish. And thinking about my ancestors, like it was really real. They took the problem seriously. In their case, they had to actually... He had to actually like pick up a rifle and go fight a battle in like the winter in Massachusetts or whatever, right? That's pretty real. So, I mean, for me, I take these problems and the political constraints very seriously, right? I mean, I, it's not that I see sort of like a revolutionary streak in, in myself. Yeah, I mean, this is sort of like Burke, right? It's like, I guess the American Revolution was like conservative in some way, but like generally revolutionary stuff is, is typically like, like entropic, like tending towards disorder. And that sort of isn't in accordance with my philosophy, my personal philosophy or my like vision for the company. I want to build, I want to build like a, a beautiful, highly ordered society with incentives that are designed in, in an elegant way, such that governance mechanisms and, and the people that administer them don't get deranged at any point. I mean, it's sort of challenging, but sort of these incentive design questions are the things that I think about the most. But, but I think really, I mean, it just forces me to take these problems really seriously, right? It's like there are people who have laid down their lives 
to sort of fight for the structures they believe in and, and to fight for their personal freedom and their family's freedom and so forth. So for me, it's, it's not a LARP. It's not, it's, you know, it's not sort of like, let's participate in this space. It's like, no, let's, let's actually try to build a community that is really meaningful to people, that's exciting enough to people that they're willing to leave San Francisco or New York or whatever other compelling opportunity they have and participate in a new community that's, that's simply different, right? That's actually unique. Now it makes sense, mm-hmm. Dryden. <laughs> that is such a cool way to frame your whole purpose for building charter cities. Dryden might not see a revolutionary streak in himself, but building a new society is pretty revolutionary. Thanks for listening. We hope you liked this episode. To keep up with Dryden's work, follow Blue Book Cities on Twitter. For exclusive access to our bonus segment, CC Confidential, subscribe at conservativecurious.com. Until next time, stay curious. of the questions that you're asking like i have my sort of like based like red pill spicy answer and like i'm just trying not to say anything but like we'll get it